Psalm 118 this morning, again, a message I've entitled One Book. And so in the ultimate sense, kind of what I'm going with this one book is that the Bible is one book. You know, we could break it down. We say, well, it's really, Steve, it's, it's 66 books written by, you know, 40 plus authors over all these years. And I understand that. I know those stats. But in the ultimate sense, the Bible is one book. It's one story that God is writing and directing through all of human history. That's really what it is, and that's what makes it so powerful, and that's why it's so fun for me at MCA to teach different Bible classes and help kids to see how these different books of the Bible tie together into this one story, so it's one book. So we're going to do a lot of that today. We're going to see what's said in Psalm 118, and we're going to turn different places like we always do, but we're going to spend some time seeing how this one book fits together, but in a similar way, I want you to understand that our individual lives, your individual life, is also one book. It's one book that God is writing. And so he's bringing all these different broken pieces of our lives, these different experiences, highs and lows, these mountaintops and valleys and plains. He's bringing it all together into one book. So it's really important for us to understand that because as we turn the pages of our lives, sometimes we're understanding, I don't understand what's happening in this chapter. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why God is writing this way. I don't understand where this storyline is going, but we want to remind ourselves that God is writing this story. He's bringing it all together for our good and for his glory. And so these things in the scriptures that we see today, many of them are going to be familiar to you, but we need to be reminded of them. The reason why these same themes are in the scripture over and over and over again is because, as Pastor Chuck said, sheep forget. (laughs) We forget, we need to be reminded, we need to be shepherded by God through his word so that we can keep on going today, right? Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow, worry about its own thing. Sufficient for the day is his own trouble. He says, what I want you to do today is just today, I want you to seek first my kingdom. I want you to seek first my righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. So that's my hope is that you're encouraged today to realize that what's happening in your life today on this Sunday is not some outlier, It's not something that that doesn't belong with the rest of your life. It's part of the story that God's writing. It's that book of your life, and and that book of your life is tied to this book that's on your lap, okay, or on your screens. It's the the book of God's word that he is writing for all of human history. Okay, with that said, let's jump into Psalm 118. And what we have here, kind of a little background, commentators think that this might be a psalm that was given, that was written, that was sung when the the walls and gates were dedicated under the time of Nehemiah. Now, we can't know that for sure, but, you know, if you're unfamiliar with Nehemiah, you'll remember that he came back after the Babylonian captivity and rebuilt the walls and gates around Jerusalem to try to to help restore the land, restore the people. And so um, this may be a psalm related to that. And so I'll kind of make some reference to that, but we don't know for sure. But, but like all of the word of God, it has application to our lives. It has application to what God is doing in our lives today. And so let's begin by looking at the first four verses of Psalm 118, where we read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. So again, this is a, to be a public psalm, and so the psalmist is, is leading the people. Hey, remember that God is merciful. Remember that God is loving, that his mercy endures forever. And so this is a call to uh, the public proclamation of God's goodness and God's mercy. 
that it's good to be reminded of God's goodness and his mercy. And so again, the application immediately for verses one through four, because if you've been with us through the Psalms, you realize, well, this is something I've heard over and over again. This is something that I just sang about a while ago. But these, these are truths to remind ourselves of because we live in a world that is not good and merciful. We live in a world that's full of canceling and hostility and anger and frustration and being cut off on the loop and all these things. These, this is the world that we live in. And so we need to remind ourselves that God is good and that God is merciful. We need to choose to judge our circumstances through this truth and not judge this truth through our circumstances. It's vital that we hide the word of God in our hearts and use it as the lens through which we see the world. That, that the word of God must be that lens. And so as we look at the madness in our world, we say, okay, I don't know what's going on with all this madness, but I know that God is good and that God is merciful. And so I'm gonna trust that in the midst of that. And because here's what God wants to do in your life and my life. God wants us to live by faith. But us as human beings, we don't wanna live by faith. We say we do. We sing about it. But in reality, Living by faith is challenging. It's difficult. It's trusting in the midst of a world that's like, it doesn't really seem like it lines up with what God says things should be like. Well, that's right, because it's a world that's under the sway of the evil one. It's a world that's in rebellion to God. And so it's really, really important that we judge our circumstances through the truth of the word of God. The word of God must come first. And so to, to kind of get you started up and, and um, thinking about this a little bit more, would you turn near the end of your Bibles to the book of James? Let's turn to James chapter 5. Now, if it's been a while since you've read through the book of James, it's a great place to go back to if you need a little spiritual kick in the rear, because <laughs> that's what James will do. It's a good exhortation. Hopefully you guys can take it if I say rear from the pulpit. But um, James chapter 5, looking at verses 7 through 11 here. James says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You know, I personally have a love-hate relationship with the book of James. I love it. It's the word of God. But all throughout, he's saying to be patient. And as time passes, I realize, man, I really need patience. And so he's saying, be patient. Until when? Until you get that next promotion or be patient until things change. No, he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. <laughs> wow, that could be a while. Right? We hope it's soon. And I hope it is. I hope it's before the end of this message. And, and you're like, well, I know how long you teach, Steve. I hope it's before the end of this message too. Uh, but, but it's this, this, this reality of as long as, until we see the Lord, essentially, let's be patient. And then he gives the example of a farmer, right? A, a farmer waits patiently. A farmer doesn't plant the seed and then expect, okay, well, tomorrow I'll just come by and it'll be ready. A, a farmer waits patiently. That's what he wants. And so he says to us, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. And in other words, make your heart steadfast, steady. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand uh, or is, is near. In other words, the coming of the Lord could be at any moment, right? At any moment, he could rapture his church. And so we're to be constantly patient. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned or you be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
So that when, when we become impatient and we start grumbling with each other and fighting with each other, then he says, like, you don't have to answer to Jesus for that. So let's just, how about we just cut that part out? And he says, my brethren, take the prophets. Okay, right? The prophets are heroes. You know, the Old Testament prophets and all they did. It says, notice, who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Please understand that God's chosen people have always had to be patient and they've always suffered. That's, that's part of the story. And it says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Okay, so as I'm, uh, remember, the, the main point that I'm seeking to, to bring out of this is judging our circumstances through the truth of the word of God. The truth of the word of God says we're going we're gonna to suffer. The truth of the word of God says we're going to need patience. The truth of the word of God says the Lord is coming, but we're going to have to wait until that day. And so he says, indeed, we count them blessed to endure. So in other words, when we're enduring, when we're patient, when we stand before the Lord, he's going to say, you're blessed. I appreciate that. And then he brings up the ultimate example of looking at your circumstances and saying, what in the world is going on? And that's Job. He says, you have heard of the perseverance of Job. And here it is. And seeing the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. If, if you were to read the book of Job and not finish it, you would say, the Lord is patient, compassionate, and merciful. Are you kidding me? You've got to read the whole thing. You've got to read the whole book. If you stop in the story of Joseph, when Joseph is still in prison, you're going to say, how is the Lord compassionate and merciful? You've got to finish the whole story. That's where we are. Our story is not finished. And so in the difficulty, the hardship, the, the heart-wrenching things that we're going through, we have a tendency to want to quit, but our story isn't complete. The last chapter of this earthly life hasn't been written yet. God still got some chapters to write. And so I want to bring this into our heart. We want to, to say, okay, this is how it is. There's going to be a need for suffering, a need for patience in this life, but I'm going to trust that in the end, the Lord's going to bring about a good end, and he is compassionate and merciful. All right, would you turn back for a moment? to Psalm 118, but don't get comfortable. We're turning more places. Uh, Psalm 18, verse 5. Sorry, Psalm 118, verse 5. The psalmist writes, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. That word for distress, you know, I actually didn't look it up in the Hebrew, but a common word for distress or tribulation in the New Testament speaks of squeezing, speaks of a tight place. And so that's probably what it is here. You know, I was in a tight place, but then the Lord set me in a broad place, right? I was in a difficult situation. I was between a rock and a hard place. And what happened, God put me in a, in a wide, expansive place. He put me out in a, in a wonderful place. And so what I want you to focus on here is that the psalmist recounts a past deliverance. The psalmist recounts a time where God had delivered him. That's really important. That's, that's kind of a point I want to make. But I want to make that point by having you turn uh, to 1 Samuel this time. So would you turn left a bit to 1 Samuel. As you're turning there, there is uh, this big old giant from Philistia who is threatening the Israelites. So you probably know him as Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, verses 32 through 37. What we have to understand is that this is not the first time. As, as David just kind of walks on the scene and David wants to challenge Goliath. David's tired of this guy, you know, blaspheming the God of Israel. It wasn't like David had done nothing in his life and just showed up and said, you know what? Maybe I'll throw a rock at this big dude. 
That wasn't the attitude. The thing was, he had already had a relationship with the Lord. He had been delivered time and time again, and he's going to recount that. This is vital. For you and I to keep on in this Christian faith, what's going to happen is we need to remember our past deliverances. We need to remember those situations and circumstances that God brought us out of, those prayers that he answered so that we might continue on. And so this is what we see. It's a beautiful picture of 1 Samuel 17. Let's pick up in verse 32. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, and it was because of Goliath, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. When it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord, here it is, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. This is vitally important. Please hear me. Past deliverance leads to present confidence. Past deliverance leads to present confidence. If you and I are struggling and we don't have present confidence in what God's calling us to, one of two things are true. Either we have forgotten our past deliverance or we've never had a past deliverance. If we've never had a past deliverance, then really we have some serious issues. We need to get with the Lord. <laughs> we, need, we need to get and say, like, Lord, do I have a real relationship with you? Am I walking with you? Have I? Or most likely, probably for everyone in this room, you have past deliverance, you've just forgotten about him. You just haven't thought about them. You haven't considered them. You haven't sat down and say, I'm going to take inventory of the ways that God's delivered me in the past, the ways he's moved in my life, the way he's answered prayer, the way he's moved. So, so it's really, really important for us to understand that those past deliverances lead to present confidence, and that's what we see with David. All right, with that in mind, let's turn back to Psalm 118. We'll look at verses 6 through 9 now. The psalmist writes, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me? That's a great one to underline, asterisk, memorize. That's a wonderful verse there. It says, the Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Now, God and God alone is what we're being told here, is worthy of our full confidence. God and God alone is worthy of our full confidence. It's very easy for us to put confidence in people, right? And to say, oh, and you know what? We, we know some wonderful people and we know some faithful people, but every person that you have ever met is limited. They can't do what God can do. So while we can be confident in certain people and, and that they, we know they're faithful, our full confidence is only for the Lord. He's the only one we're to put our full confidence in. Okay, so with more, for more on this, turn to Matthew now. I told you I was going to make good on this one book deal. All right, Matthew chapter 14 is where we want to look. Matthew 14, we're going to look at verses 25 through 31. 
I could have made a good joke about not having confidence in the Aggies football team, but they scored 52 points yesterday, you know, and so I'm going to have confidence in them for a bit. Uh, Matthew 14, verses 25 through 31. Again, okay, a familiar passage to us, but I want you to look at it. I want you to think about it. I want you to consider it in light of having full confidence only in the Lord, okay? So verse 25, Matthew 14, now in the fourth watch on the night, of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. It's pretty awesome. Jesus is like, I'm just going to take a shortcut. I'm just going to walk across the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. <laughs> and they cried out for fear. Now, that, that seems like a logical conclusion, right? <laughs> you see a figure walking on the, on the sea, okay, maybe it's a ghost. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, and I love the faith of Peter, and he said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. That's pretty radical, He's like, if we're walking on the water today, can I come? <laughs> I mean, if that's what we're doing. And notice how Jesus responded. He said to him, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. So Peter's actually walking on the water. He's doing it. Okay, but here's where trouble comes. Verse 30, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So here's the lesson for us, and you've heard it before, but hear it again. In the midst of the wind and waves of this life, please keep your eyes on the Lord. Because as God calls us to walk by faith out to him, as we say, Lord, I want to follow you where you go, there, it's going to be boisterous. There are going to be wind and waves, but the key for you and for I is we have to keep our eyes on the Lord. And that's what Jesus says. Jesus is essentially saying, why are you looking around? Why are you doubting? Why is your focus on the wind? Why is your focus on the waves? Look at me. The Lord is our confidence. He's the one that we need to trust in. All right, let's look back to Psalm 118 as we move into verses 10 through 13 now. It says, all nations surrounded me. And so, so this, uh, before I read verses 10 through 13, I would say this, this really kind of leans into maybe Nehemiah writing this psalm. Because if you're familiar with Nehemiah, he had a lot of adversity, a lot of people coming against him, a lot of enemies. And that's a good reminder for us that whenever you step out to work for the Lord, you will find enemies. You will find difficulty. You will find hardship. You will find spiritual, um, you know, oppression. That's the reality. So, so verses 10 through 13 looks like Nehemiah wrote this. says, all nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. So this is really highly figurative language, but it's this idea that these enemies came against him, whether it's Nehemiah or someone different, but that the Lord gave him the ability to fight against them and to accomplish what God called him to accomplish. And that's great news for you and I. Whatever it is that God's called us to accomplish, whatever he's writing in our book, the book of our life, he can give us the power to accomplish that. You and I might look at our lives and say, well, I don't know. It doesn't really seem like he's accomplishing something great. It doesn't matter what it looks like to us. It matters what it looks like to him. It matters what, what he is doing. 
And, and so um, this is a wonderful thing. And again, it's a si- similar thing that the psalmist had experienced past deliverance. Again, past deliverance leads to present confidence. And so for more on this issue of past deliverance leading to present confidence, would you turn to 2 Timothy now? So turn, you know, fairly near the end of your Bibles to 2 Timothy, a little before Hebrews. As you turn to 2 Timothy, this is the, the last letter that Paul wrote. Okay, and so he's, he's uh, in the Mamertine prison in Rome. It's a, essentially a dungeon. And he's, uh, he's awaiting um, execution. So this is what he writes, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, and and I'd encourage you, you know, if, if you're feeling down, you're feeling discouraged, uh, a great couple of books would t- be to read is read Philippians and read 2 Timothy. Those are a couple of good ones just to, to really encourage you. And so this is what Paul writes to Timothy, starting there in verse 16 of chapter 4. He says, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me, may I not be charged against them. In other words, when he had to stand, uh, you know, most likely before Caesar Nero, and so he had a, 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 you know, to, to stand and to answer for him. No one showed up as kind of like a character witness. They were all afraid. And so Paul was there alone before the emperor of Rome. And he says, may it not be charged against them. So in other words, he's not holding a, grinch to, a, a grudge against them. He's saying it just happened. And, but notice what happens in verse 17. He says, they're not there, but the Lord stood with me. So the Lord showed up. The Lord strengthened him says, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. So in other words, he's still getting to testify. People there in Rome, the Gentiles are, are hearing the truth of the word of God. And notice, also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Now, commentators think that that might be figurative mouth of the lion because as a, as a, um, a citizen of Rome, they wouldn't have thrown him into the Colosseum. Uh, he was gonna be executed by beheading. So it's his idea of this this you know, maybe the, the emperor is referred to as, as the lion, and God delivered him out of that. And notice, so that was a past deliverance. And if you read 2 Corinthians, you'll see all the past deliverances Paul had, all these different things God brought him through. But here's, here's the present confidence. Notice, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, please understand, Paul knew he was about to die. Okay, Paul said that I'm a drink offering poured out. He says, I have finished my faith. I I have finished my race. I've run my race. I've kept the faith. And so what Paul is saying in verse 18 is that even when I'm executed, which is most likely going to happen soon, I'm going to be delivered through that death into his kingdom, and I can trust that he's going to hold on to me. He's going to preserve me. You can't do anything or I'm sorry, Satan can't do anything against a Christian who says, death delivers me. That, there's, there's no stopping that person. And so if, if you need some more encouragement, I would, uh, you know, and, you, and you're kind of in the right mindset, you can read Fox's Book of Martyrs sometime. Read some stories from Fox's Book of Martyrs and see how people willingly walked to be burned at the stake, forgiving those who were burning them, and died with a smile on their face because they knew it was going to deliver them. It's a radical thing. This is the God we serve. This is the power he has that he can deliver us and then give us that, those past deliverances lead to that present confidence so that whatever we're going through, we can keep going for one more day. All right, back to Psalm 118. We're gonna take a bigger chunk here. We're gonna look at verses 14 through 21. 
says, the, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely but has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them. I will praise the Lord. The, this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. Okay, so wonderful picture here. I just want to bring out a few points of what the Lord is. First of all, he says the Lord is our strength. The Lord's our strength. And so what I want you to get from that is the Lord is the one who empowers us. Okay, the Lord empowers us. We don't need only physical strength to live this life. We need spiritual strength. We need the, the Holy Spirit to, to, to give us the ability to complete the race that he's called us to run. So it's really important for us to be empowered. Now notice also the Lord is our song. What does it mean for the Lord to be our song? It means the Lord's our focus. Right? When, you li- when you listen to a love song, what's happening? The person singing the song is singing about a person. That person is their focus. So the Lord being our song means the Lord is our focus. And then he also says the Lord is our salvation. What does salvation mean? It means deliverance. The Lord's our deliverer. The Lord has delivered us from sin, and the Lord will deliver us to his kingdom. And then finally, the Lord is our chastener. You know, it's easy to, to like leave that one out. Verse 18, the Lord has chastened me severely, but has not given me over to death. It means the Lord's our corrector. That when we do what, the things we're not supposed to do, then the Lord chastens us. He brings us back into line. And what's our response to all of these things? The Lord being our strength, our song, our salvation, our chastener, is we're to praise him. That's the key. So, so here's the big picture. God is always right. <laughs> God's always right. And since God is always right, we should always praise him. And, and so one of the things that I would encourage you to do and I would encourage me to do is, is sometime this week is go back through Psalm 118 and just pray through it. Pray through the things that you see here. And what happens is, is God will continue to work on your heart and you'll see, okay, God is right. God is always good. God's always merciful. And so I should always praise him. All right, let's move on to verses 22 and 23 now. It says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Okay. This is one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament that's from the Old Testament. And so what's happening here, a couple of different things. It could be that the psalmist initially is speaking about himself, that maybe he was in a position that, that people had rejected him, but God used him in this central key thing. But we also know that the psalmist is speaking prophetically. And so we don't know if the psalmist knew he was speaking prophetically or he's writing these things and it was prophetic, but he just didn't know. But either way, this is a prophetic statement. He's speaking about Jesus Christ. So to prove my point, we're actually going to turn a couple of places in the New Testament, spend a little time digging deep into this topic. So would you turn to Matthew chapter 21, first of all? Matthew 21. As you're turning to Matthew 21, and then we're going to go to Acts after that, here's here's the point I'm seeking to make about turning here, about this chief cornerstone. You see, a chief cornerstone was the most important part of a foundation of a building. That everything else in that foundation, everything off that building would be measured off, would be angled off of that chief cornerstone. 
And, and so what we're going to look at, what we're going to seek to understand, what we're going to remind ourselves of is that Jesus Christ is indispensable for every life. Okay, please hear me. It's not only for the Christian life. You know, because oh, Christians, you know, they believe in Jesus, and of course, Jesus needs to be central for them. No, no life can be built right that is not built on Jesus. It doesn't matter what people believe. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter. No life can be built correctly unless Jesus Christ is the foundation, unless he is the cornerstone. So let's see what Jesus has to say about this in Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Keep in mind, this is the last week of his public ministry, okay? We've already had the triumphal entry, and he's starting to share with people. And he says, verse 33, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, I would encourage you, I, I forgot to, to make a slide for this, but you can kind of make a note of Isaiah chapter 5. If you read Isaiah chapter 5, um, all that imagery is there. This is a clear imagery of the nation of Israel. That the nation of Israel was this vineyard, okay? And so what, what's a, a picture here is of God planting the nation of Israel, and then the only reason you plant a vineyard is you expect it to bear fruit. Okay, that's the reality. You don't plant a vineyard just to look at it. You plant a vineyard to bear fruit. And so Israel was there, and they were supposed to bear fruit unto God. And so he says, and then when the vintage time drew near, in other words, time to get those grapes, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And so in context, these servants are the prophets. The prophets would go to the nation of Israel and they would encourage the people to bear fruit. But notice what happened to those prophets, verse 35. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first that they did likewise to them. In other words, the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is all these prophets going to the people and the prophets being stoned or killed or rejected. That's the picture. And so notice verse 37, and then last of all, he sent his son. Well, well, who's the son of the vineyard owner? What's Jesus Christ? The son of the father. So he sent his son to him, last of all, saying, they will respect my son, but when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. So Jesus is prophesying his coming death that was going to be at the end of the week. Therefore, the, what will the owner, when the owner of the vineyard comes, in other words, comes in judgment, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably, lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to them him fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, and here it is, this is radical. Please understand who he's talking to. He's talking to religious leaders who have spent their entire adult lives studying the word of God. And he says to them, have you never read? <laughs> Jesus is not above some sarcasm. Okay, he, he goes after them. So he's, 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 he's addressing their blindness. He says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Jesus is saying, 
I'm the chief cornerstone. If you don't build your life on me, you're going to be broken or crushed to powder. It's not going to work. So, so I have to be the one. And, and the reason why I bring this up and you say, I know this, Steve, and I've heard this before. Th- this is the central truth of life. The central truth of life is that any life that's not built on Jesus, ultimately that person will stand at the great white throne judgment. They will be judged for their works and they will be cast into the lake of fire eternally. That is the reality of the scriptures. And no matter how foreign that may sound in 2023, it remains the truth. It remains the reality. And so this truth must be grounded in our hearts. There must be both encouragement that, yes, my life is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He is my chief cornerstone. So my life matters. My life is useful. But also to say, those who are building on shifting sand and not on the teachings of the word of God, I I, I need to, to find a way to reach them. I want to ask God to open doors so that I might reach out to them. Now with this, and so, so really the, the lesson here is that the Lord Jesus, again, he's a chief cornerstone in God's plan for human history. He must be the foundation of all of our lives. And, and to just, to, to really dig down a little bit deeper into this, would you turn now to the book of Acts? Let's go to Acts chapter 3. See, I, I timed my message on purpose this way, so it's, it's not a misprint up there. We are going to go through all of Acts 3 up to Acts 4, verse 12. <laughs> Someone's upset. <laughs> all right, Acts 3. Okay, again, the indispensability of Jesus. Please, please understand this. Please hold on to this truth. So Jesus has <clears throat> ascended into heaven. Uh, the disciples are kind of getting going. We've had the, the day of Pentecost. 3,000 men have gotten saved. We're not told how many women and children have gotten saved. Kind of the early church is getting going. And, and so uh, we read here, now Peter and John, okay, because so they're kind of like the leaders right now of the early church. Peter and John went up together to the temple in the hour of prayer, in the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, in other words, his, his legs have never worked his entire life, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple and who who seeing Peter and John to go out into the who about to go into the temple asked for alms. I want to stop there for just a minute because this is a pretty radical thing to think about. How many times did Jesus walk by this guy? It seems like Jesus would have walked by this guy a bunch of times during his public ministry and never healed him. Because it seems like this guy has been there at the gate beautiful for a long time. It's very interesting to think about why would Jesus have walked by him so many times? Because Jesus was writing a specific story for Peter and John, and he wanted Peter and John to be the ones to heal these guys because he had something different to do. So it's really radical. So this guy asked for alms. He asked for something, some money, and, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave him his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, in this moment, Peter has what we call the gift of faith. Because <laughs> when you, you're about to grab a guy by the hand, look at, look at this verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. So when you grab a guy whose legs haven't worked from the, the moment he was born and you seek to lift him up, you better be right. <laughs> you better be right that God is, is going to heal this man 
And notice immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And all the muscles and tendons and everything, they start working immediately because notice what the guy does. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with him, walking, leaping, and praising God. That's miraculous. Because most of us, after sitting in these chairs for a sermon, we can't leap up. (laughs) We need to do it like in stages. And so here's this immediate healing, and all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew it was he who sat at the alms and the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him, and Peter and John started a website and made a lot of money. It doesn't say that, right? They do this work of God, but look what happens. Now, as a layman who was healed, held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's porch, greatly amazed. And when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us um, as though through our, by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, who, whom he was when he was determined to let him go. Notice what Peter does. He's not saying, well, yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, I really have some faith. And Matt, God's working through old Pete. You know, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he immediately focuses his attention, who? To the chief cornerstone. And then he doesn't pull any punches. He says, you guys delivered Jesus up to death. You denied Jesus. You said you didn't want him. He says, verse 14, but you denied the holy, and the holy one and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and you killed the prince of life. That's a wild turn of phrase. You killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are his witnesses. And here it is. And his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see, uh, see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance as also did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets and the Christ, that Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. And so here it is. He offers to them the way of salvation. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Wonderful. Peter, this amazing on-the-spot sermon, he turns it back to Jesus. He says, here's the bad news. You guys rejected Jesus. You killed the Prince of Life. But here's the good news. Hey, he'll forgive you of that that you can be saved, that that this is what was foretold by the prophets and this wonderful, wonderful picture. It's beautiful. 
And then notice, now as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So church is growing, but We can't miss the dichotomy here that God clearly healed this man through Peter, clearly empowered Peter to give this message, and at the same time allowed Peter and John to be arrested. So that's that's our tension, right? That God will do great things through us and move through us by his spirit, but then will at the same time allow suffering for his purposes, for the story he's writing. And then continuing on, it says, Now it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, By what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. What a radical thing to say. He's saying, it's kind of weird that you would arrest us for healing a guy. (laughs) Like, what in the world? But then, be that as it may, I want you guys to know, you crucified Jesus but he didn't stay crucified. You killed him, but he didn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead, and it's proof that he's alive and that he's powerful because that's how this man is healed. And look what what Peter does. Peter brings this back to Psalm 118. He says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Brings us back again. And then he gives us verse 12, which I think is one of the most important verses for us to memorize. For us to remind that Jesus is the only way, notice, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I don't know if Peter was a lawyer in his part time, but you look at verse 12, that's an ironclad statement. There is no wiggle room whatsoever for entering in any other person of salvation. It doesn't say, well, if you're sincere enough or you just haven't heard enough or this. No, no, no. Peter says, here's the deal, guys. Peter is under arrest. He's, he's testifying before this hostile court, and he says, Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is indispensable. And, and so, you know, thank you for uh, taking time with me here as we move through all of this, but I really felt led by the Lord to share this, and and I'm glad that this is on tape and on video, because I'm glad I'm on record saying this truth, that this is the only way. It doesn't matter if tomorrow morning, uh, you know, eight billion people get up and say, hey, we think that there's, there's all kinds of way of salvation. It doesn't matter. This is what the Word of God says that the only Jesus is the way of salvation. But here's the good news. No matter how much a person has sinned, no matter how far they've gone, if they'll turn to Jesus Christ, Jesus will save them. It doesn't matter how far down the road they've gone. It doesn't matter how long they've rejected this chief cornerstone. If they'll turn to him now, God will build a new life on himself. Let's turn now back to Psalm 118 as we jump into verse 24 here. 
says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And, and so some people see this kind of being tied to verses 22 and 23, that perhaps this is a reference to the resurrection. That, you know, as, as the, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, this was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Maybe, maybe it refers to the resurrection. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, as I kind of look at it and study it, it's a little bit of a leap for me personally. I don't know that I can necessarily tie that to the resurrection. But what I can say is that verse 24 should apply to believers every day. It should apply to believers every day. Let me give you three verses why this should apply to believers every day. Uh, verse number one is Psalm 23, verse six. It says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that follow actually means pursue. It's this idea of a predator pursuing its prey, that God's goodness and mercy are pursuing believers every day. Even though it may not look like it to us, God is still writing a story where that goodness and mercy are pursuing us. So that's a reason to rejoice today. Second verse I'll give you is Psalm 139, verse 16, where we read these words, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. In other words, when, when he was in the womb, God saw you when you were in the womb, and in your book... It says, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. So God has written all of our days. God has written his book, and yeah, there's a part for us to play, and, and God's organizing and overseeing, and yet somehow we have choice, and we're making these. So I don't know how it all works together, but I know that if God is writing our story, he has this book, then every day is a day to rejoice in him, because it's still goodness and mercy are following us, because it's still part of what he's, he's um, writing. And then we have the ultimate verse for why we can rejoice in the day that the Lord has made. Uh, it's Romans eight twenty eight. Because we know all those days that are written for us are coming to a good end. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a book, I want it to have a happy ending. The good news, as you get to Revelation 21 and 22, you're like, yes, this book has a happy ending. And, and so Romans 8, 28 tells us that this one book of our lives is going to have a happy ending because it says this, and we know that all things, you know, we, we could say, you could say all things of every day, work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So you and I, because of our fallenness and because of our short-sightedness, we may not rejoice every day. But there's always a reason to rejoice every day. We may not see it, but it's there. The truth of the word of God says that it is. Let's look at verse 25 now. It says, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. And so it's a prayer for deliverance. It's a, it's a prayer for provision. Those are good things to pray for, right? Pray for deliverance from a, a difficult situation. Pray for provision from God and then trust him that he knows, you know, when to deliver and when to provide and according to his will. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. It's another familiar verse for us from the New Testament, the triumphal entry. I'll read it for you. Psalm 21, verse 9 says, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out. So this is when Jesus is coming in on the donkey, and they're all crying out to him and saying, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So recognition of Jesus as Messiah. Then verses 27 and 28 
God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords and the horns with altars. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. So it's this idea of, of offering sacrifices to the Lord, willingly giving sacrifices to the Lord. And it's a reminder that, that we're to willingly sacrifice for the Lord. It tells us to give, us the, give him the sacrifice of thanksgiving, the sacrifice of praise. But I want to always remind you that as you're reading the Old Testament, all of those Old Testament sacrifices, they always pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were all just pictures pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, our ultimate sacrifice. And, and we'll celebrate that ultimate sacrifice as we take communion at the end of service. And finally, verse 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And, and the main thing I want to bring out from verse 29 is that that's how the psalm started, and that's how the psalm ended. And, and so it's good for us to begin and end with thanks. To begin and end our day with thanks. To begin our day recognizing God's goodness and mercy. To end our day recognizing goods, God's goodness and mercy. And so as we wrap up our time today, then I just want to leave you with three reminders. Reminder number one is that we must remind ourselves of God's goodness and mercy. As we look around, as we spend time in this world and kind of what the world feeds us, we're not going to see goodness and mercy by and large. Okay, you're not going to get on the internet and, you know, some news feed and it says, hey, this really good thing happened today. <laughs> that doesn't sell. And so we need to remind ourselves of God's goodness and mercy. And the number one way we can do that is to stay in the word of God. Stay in the word of God. Listen to, you know, uh, sermons online where people are, are teaching the truth of the goodness and mercy of God. Put yourself in that. Continually remind yourselves of it because the world's not going to remind you of it. So you have to be the one to do it. Reminder number two is that we must remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The Lord Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation for every life. Now, we can't make anyone else, you know, establish Jesus as the chief cornerstone for their life. We can't make anyone build their life on Jesus, but what we can do is say, I'm going to choose to build my life on Jesus, and I'm going to continue to encourage other people to do that, but it's their choice, but I must always remind myself there's no other cornerstone. There's no other foundation but Jesus Christ. And then thirdly and finally, I want to remind ourselves that like the Bible, our individual lives are one book that God's writing. Please hear me today, believer. God is writing the book of your life, okay? And, and you might say, wow, this, I don't know, I, I wish he just had a different editor here. <laughs> you know, I don't know that all these things I want in my life. No, no, God knows what he's doing. So God is, is writing that book of your life and he is bringing all the pieces together for your good and for his glory. Let's pray.